The following message was given at Grace Community Church in Minden, Nevada. Turn to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. As you're turning there, I would just remind you that we started this study um, on Septem- in September of 2015, and <clears throat> we've had a few interruptions, things like um, brain tumors and vacations, and so um, we're getting near the end. Uh, once we finish chapter 15, 16 will be a breeze, and then what we're going to do is we're going to do a study that will be more of type of a survey, although whenever I say that, I never actually mean it. Um, it's hard for me just to do a survey, you have to understand, uh, of the book of Revelation. And uh, it just seems like uh, an appropriate time because, I mean, let's face it, if this is not the end of the world, this is most certainly what the end of the world feels like, Right? But uh, we are still in 1 Corinthians 15, and tonight we get to really a wonderful chapter, passage, and we'll read starting in verse 20. So Paul, after giving his, uh, his uh, if, then, if Christ has not been raised, if the dead has not been raised, so forth, he gets to verse 20 and he says triumphantly, but now Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who are asleep, for since by a man... Death by a man also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, after that those who are Christ's at his coming, at his parousia. Then the end. When he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father, when He has abolished all rule and authority, all authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. For he has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says all things are put in subjection, it is evident that he is accepted who put all things in subjection to him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him, so that God may be all in all. Amen. So what a, what a great, great passage. So uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is famous for uh, it's the resurrection chapter. Just like 1 Corinthians 13 is the love chapter, 1 Corinthians uh, 15 is the most famous and lengthiest treatment on the resurrection. And uh, we have seen as we've traveled through this marvelous chapter, uh, verses 1 through 11, uh, the presentation of the gospel, as it were, and then what would be called the sine qua non of Christ's resurrection. In other words, sine qua non is the without which nothing, right? So if Christ has not been raised from the dead, none of it's true, right? But if Christ has been raised from the dead, all of it is true. And so this is, this is Paul's burden, is to present the 
resurrection as the linchpin, as the central feature of the gospel. I would encourage you as you read the book of Acts, what, what do you see? You don't see the crucifixion as the centerpiece of apostolic preaching. You see the resurrection as the centerpiece of apostolic preaching. Resurrection assumes the cross, and the cross is often preached in Acts, but the predominant theme is you put Jesus to death, God raised him from the dead. So Paul is going to actually give a defense in this passage, in this chapter, not of the resurrection of Christ, but he's going to give a defense of the resurrection of believers. The Corinthians weren't denying the resurrection of Jesus. What they were denying is that his followers were going to be raised. And so what Paul does in in verses 12 to 34 is he gives a sustained defense. So 12 to 19, which we saw a few weeks ago or however long, if if the dead are not raised, Christ has not been raised. Now, there's a very simple reason why this is Paul's argument, and that is that Christ's resurrection and our resurrection are inextricably tied together. You cannot deny one without denying the other. And so in verses 20 to 28, which we'll review a little bit from the first part and then see the rest tonight, Christ has indeed been raised and believers, therefore, will also be raised. Paul then moves, verses 29 to 34, to a number of pragmatic um, arguments for the resurrection of believers, um, one of which is incredibly strange, verse 29, a baptism for the dead. And uh, then Paul then spends the rest of his time in the chapter, how are the dead to be raised? The answer is bodily, all right? We're not talking about just resurrecting a nice idea We're talking about raising a dead body and the nature of the resurrection body, 35 to 49. And then Paul gives, uh, in a sense, what what we could call resurrection, death of death, and and Christian ethics. So remember for Paul, so resurrection and the death of death, that's the consummation of Christ's saving work, right? Both in his death and resurrection, right? Is to bring about our resurrection and the death of death. And for Paul... He can't talk about um, the gospel and the central features of Christ's saving work without drawing out the implications for how we are to live. The ethics of what it means to be in union with the one who has put death to death. To be in union with the one Uh, in whom we shall be raised in the future. So for Paul, there is, um, and and I'm going to say this till I'm an old man and just repeating myself all the time, there is always a dynamic connection between doctrine and ethics, right? And so, and, and one of the things that really bugs me today is there seems to be, um, uh, a drive to separate ethics from the doctrine of the gospel. Okay? And so we have, um, by the way, if you haven't seen this, you just haven't been awake. Gospel-centered this, gospel-centered that, gospel-centered everything, right? 
And there's a sense where that's wonderful and that's good. But for Paul, anything that was gospel-centered was going to lead to a life that was transformed ethically. All right? So Paul brings together doctrine and ethics in that final section of 50 to 58. All right? So tonight we're going to pick up where we left off a few weeks ago. And um, uh, I'll just say from the outset, this passage itself has been a, a battleground passage between pre, post, and amillennialists, all right? Um, I'm not going to go into all of those details because, to me, I think we just go through the passage. I'll just, by the way, I'll point out a few things here and there, but that's not going to be my major emphasis. But just know that this passage has been a battleground for different views of eschatology, all right? So, A few weeks ago, we saw in verse 20, but now Christ has been raised from the dead. So this follows the heels of Paul's uh, if-then arguments. And so for Paul, do you think Paul had any doubt that the resurrection was real? (laughs) That the resurrection was true? For Paul, all doubt had been dispelled on on the road to Damascus. <laughs> I mean, for Paul, having actually seen the risen, resurrected Christ changed his entire life, right? By the way, if Jesus Christ has not been bodily raised from the dead, there is no explanation for Saul of Tarsus. Because you're talking about a terrorist who thought he was doing God a favor. And he's transformed suddenly. All right. And so for Paul, he he says there's this there's this sense of absolute certainty. But now Christ has been raised from the dead. And then he describes Jesus as the first fruits of the resurrection or of those who have fallen asleep. And so what Paul does, and this is, this is the beauty in, in, in a sense, the, the simplicity, but the power of his argument is that he basically says, look, Christ's destiny is your destiny. If you are in union with Christ and Christ has been raised, Christ's resurrection is the first fruits of your resurrection. And so remember, um, for instance, like in the book of Leviticus, first fruits was actually woven into the, the, the very thought process of the, of the Jewish nation, where the idea was is that first fruits actually were a guarantee of later harvest. And in fact, the very feast of first fruits was a demonstration of God in his faithfulness has provided this, and if he's provided this, then he's going to provide later, right? So first fruits is actually the guarantee. The rest of the harvest is going to come. So when Paul says Christ is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, all Paul is saying is, is that Christ is the guarantee of the harvest of our resurrection. All right? And uh, by the way, it's, it's interesting. Paul does not mention it here. But that very idea of Christ's resurrection is the guarantee of our resurrection 
You know, you know what else Paul applies this, this terminology of guarantee or down payment to? He, he applies it to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is actually the, the, the first fruits of, of our adoption. In other words, he gives us the Spirit as a pledge, as a seal, as a down payment of what? Of greater redemptive blessing to come. So the very, very presence of the Holy Spirit does for us, in a sense, internally, what the resurrection of Jesus does for us historically. Historical resurrection, guarantee of future harvest, future resurrection, given the Spirit as a down payment, the first fruits of our redemption, a greater harvest which is to come. And uh, I, I tell you, I am I'm absolutely glad that the redemption which we have right now, it's marvelous, right? I mean, to be redeemed, right? Redeemed how I love to proclaim it, right? But aren't you glad that there's more to the redeeming work than what you experience right now, right? Anybody, you don't have to raise your hand. Anybody struggle with sin and temptation today? Anybody struggle with a divided heart? Anybody, anybody have an ache or a pain? Anybody go through a difficult trial just simply being a part of, the fall, of a fallen world, right? Well, there's no other way I'd rather go through any of that than a redeemed person. But my redemption's not complete. All that has been necessary for a complete redemption is done. But my redemption is not yet complete. And so I look forward to the fullness of the harvest, which has been guaranteed through the resurrection of Jesus and the gift of the Spirit. 21 and 22, which also we saw a few weeks ago. So, by the way, notice that the language is very terse. Since through a man, death. By the way, how does, how does death come into the world? Sin. That's simple. Sin. In fact, sin is death. So Paul says, since through a man, that's Adam, death, also through a man, resurrection from the dead. Right. So understand what what Paul's doing here is he is giving us the, this great Adam Christ theology, okay, which he's going to flesh out for us in Romans five twelve to twenty one. But you have this very terse, direct statement through a man death, and we know of course because of sin, okay. And uh, what's the proof that you sinned in Adam? You die. But that's not the final word. Through a man, resurrection of the dead. And so Christ brings resurrection life. So if Adam brings death because of sin, Christ brings resurrection life because he overcame sin and death. Right. And so here you have this magnificent um, perspective. And then notice what Paul says. And uh, now Paul's not going to say everything there is to say. About eschatology here, all right? But notice, verse 22, as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. Okay? 
Now, I honestly don't understand how anybody could deny the doctrine of original sin and the imputation of Adam's sin. It seems abundantly clear to me. When the minute that Paul says, in Adam all die, it's very clear that our union with Adam is what brings about <clears throat> physical death because Adam introduces sin into the world. But then notice it says, thus also in Christ all are made alive. Okay. And we touched on this a few weeks ago, but let me just let me just say that Paul does not mean in Christ everybody's going to be saved. You could read it that way, right? If you see the in Adam group as the exact same as the in Christ group, okay? If you see an absolute symmetry between those two, then all in Christ uh, are going to be made alive. That is, uh, all in Christ are going to be saved. And that actually is not only not true, it's actually heretical, okay? It's called universalism. Others argue that here, when Paul says um, all in Christ will be made alive, that this is talking about the, a universal or a general resurrection of believers and non-believers. So let me just ask you, is, is the doctrine of a general resurrection of both believers and unbelievers, is that true? Yes. John 5, 28 and 29. Everybody's going to be raised. Everybody. But there's a little phrase here that makes me think this is not just talking about the general resurrection. And the little phrase is simple. In Christ. The unbeliever is not raised on the last day by virtue of being in Christ. In other words, there's, there's no, um, let's say, resurrection benefit that comes to the unbeliever, all right? God raises him from the dead. So what, what Paul doing is, is he is talking explicitly, uniquely about believers, right? Believers who are raised. By the way, will our resurrection be different than the resurrection of the unjust? And the answer is, I think absolutely so. I mean, I, th I think that the resurrection of a believer is going to be different than the resurrection of an unbeliever. An uh, unbeliever will receive a resurrection body, uh, uh, by the way, in order to be cast into the lake of fire forever, not just as a disembodied soul, but as a whole human being. But the resurrection of believers is wonderfully different. Why? Because it, the resurrection of believers brings us into perfect conformity with Jesus Christ. Right? So our resurrection is a resurrection of a redeemed person. Okay? So our resurrection, and, and we'll get more into this as Paul talks about resurrection bodies. So when you're resurrected, you're um, your regenerated heart and mind are now glorified in such a way that they are in perfect conformity with the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, when the resurrection comes, 
you will love God like never before. And you will have joy like never before. And you will see, you will behold the beauty and the glory of God in Christ like never before. Okay? The, the unregenerate is resurrected as an unregenerate. The redeemed are resurrected as redeemed. All right? So, Paul's focus is not on the general resurrection here, but on the redemptive benefits that only belong to those who are in Christ. So, here's, here's the point of 21 and 22. We could put it like this. Christ as the last Adam brings about the great reversal of the first Adam. By the way, that theme of reversals is all throughout the Bible, right? Just finished reading the book of Esther the other day. How many grand reversals do you see there? Well, the, 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 the best reversal is what the last Adam reverses from the first Adam. Okay? And so the first Adam brings about sin. The last Adam brings about justification from sin. The first Adam brings about death. The last Adam brings about life and resurrection from the dead. All right. So then verse 23, Paul says, this is important, but each in his own order, Christ the first fruits after that, those who are Christ's at his coming. So each in his own order. The word here for order is the word tagma, which is the idea of um, of of. There's an arrangement, all right? Sometimes this was used in a military context for a sense of military order. And why does Paul have to say, but everybody or each in his own order? I think that what we get in verse 23 is probably Paul um, addressing the objection of the Corinthians, right? So what, the, what was the Corinthians' argument? Verse 12, Christians are not raised from the dead. Right? Why might you conclude Christians aren't raised from the dead? Because Christians die. And all the Christians that I've seen die have stayed dead. Right. And so you might think that maybe the Corinthians were saying, well, if the dead are raised. Why aren't they raised? I mean, wouldn't it be wonderful to die on Monday at noon and be raised by dinner time? Right. And so if the dead are raised, why aren't they raised? And Paul's answer is simply this. There's an order. There's an order. And that order has been established by God himself. And so Christ, again, the first fruits. And then notice this. Then those who belong to Christ at his parousia, at his coming. Now, <clears throat> Colossians 1.18, Paul, probably quoting an early Christian hymn, says that Christ is the, is the firstborn from the dead. Right? You ever see that phrase? Firstborn from the dead. 
Jesus was not the first person ever to be raised from the dead, right? You have resurrections in the Old Testament, right? Um, the widow's son, you know, Elijah lays on him, breathes in him, he sneezes, raised from the dead. Yeah. Jesus actually raised people from the dead. The designation of Jesus as the firstborn from the dead is to designate the uniqueness of his resurrection from the dead. Because Jesus may not be chronologically the first person to ever be raised from the dead, but he was most definitely the first person to ever be raised from the dead never to die again. In other words, his resurrection was qualitatively different than other resurrections because other resurrections were temporary. In other words, Lazarus Lazarus had the illustrious um, uh, privilege of dying twice. <laughs> Could you imagine? I just, I've never thought of that before. Here's Lazarus, and he gets sick, and he goes, up. Oh, here we go again. Right? So... <laughs> So Jesus is raised from the dead. He's the firstborn from the dead. Firstborn meaning the, the, the position of preeminence and privilege, uniqueness. And so Christ is the first fruits in the sense that, that, that his resurrection, which is actually the triumph over death, is the first in the order. Okay? So in other words, Christ's first fruits is the first in the order. Then there's a second step in the order. And who is it? Those who belong to Christ. Okay. Now, I want to just I just want to point something out and that is there's a simplicity to this. Right. The kind of eschatology that I was raised on once I became a Christian, which was the only eschatology I was aware of that existed, okay, had all kinds of resurrections. You had a resurrection at the beginning of the seven-year tribulation. You had a resurrection at the end of the seven-year tribulation. You had a resurrection at the beginning of the millennium. You had a resurrection at the end of the millennium. You had the resurrection of the just, of the unjust, of the sheep and the goats. You had a whole multitude of resurrections. This seems to be actually somewhat streamlined. Here's the order. Christ and then those who belong to Christ. Now, if, if we do want to maybe subdivide the order a little bit, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 gives us maybe a, a division. So uh, the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall be raised first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so here's, here's Paul's order of resurrection. Christ first fruits done, then those who belong to Christ, those who are actually already dead get as it were dibs on early resurrection but only early by a twinkling of an eye. 
All right? I sure hope that I'm alive when Jesus comes back. When I was in college, of course, I went to Biola, which was a heavily dispensational pre-trib, pre-mill school. And uh, your, your, your biggest fear, your biggest fear was to be a BTR. You guys know. <laughs> Bachelor till rapture. Lord, please, don't return until I get married, okay? Well, anyway, I can see you're not amused, but... <laughs> so here's, 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 the, here's the scene. So First Thessalonians, actually. So Jesus returns, all right? And what happens? Dead in Christ, raised, meet him in the air, and then those who are alive meet him in the air, and then... Here's what happens. Those who are on earth who are resurrected meet him in the air. He continues to come down to earth. They go up and make a U-turn and come back with him. It's one event. Now, I used to have friends that would tell me, with your view, you have us going up and then making a U-turn. And so all I did was retort, in your view, you have Jesus coming and making the U-turn, right? Somebody makes a U-turn, all right? And it's us. And so here's the order. And notice, Paul is, is absolutely explicit about this. When will we be made alive? What does the text say? When will we be made alive? When will we be resurrected? What? Okay. A little more specific. At his coming. And so here is this. This is the church's blessed hope. The appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we sing it every Lord's Supper. Lord, haste the day um, when my faith shall be sight. Right? And so, actually, how's that? The um, Lord, haste the day when my faith shall be sight. Um, the clouds be rolled back as a scroll. The trump shall resound. The Lord shall descend. Even so, it is well with my soul. That is, that has been the church's blessed hope for 2,000 years. And so, here again, just notice those who belong to Christ are raised at his parousia, at his coming. I don't want to belabor this, but let me just point out this does, there's nothing, absolutely nothing in this text to indicate that Christ's parousia is in two stages, or there are two different appearings. 
you do understand that if you hold to a, a, a pre-tribulational rapture, you have to posit either two stages or two comings to the Lord's return. And Paul's actually just quite simple, and that is everyone who belongs to Christ will be given life at his coming. All right? So, by the way, I believe in, uh, in what's called the, the, the Big Bang Theory of eschatology. Okay? Bang! It's all over. Verse 24, then, notice, you see in the NAS, comes is in italics, right? ESV, same. You're not looking at it? Oh, okay. Well, it doesn't, that, that won't help me right now. Anybody have the ESV open? Then comes the end. So understand, comes is in italics. So Paul is more abrupt than that. So then those who are Christ at his coming, then the end. Okay? Then the end. Now, the, the question is, this, this expression, the end, in, in Greek is, is the term telos. Okay? And telos actually has a, 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 a fairly broad Idea. It could be the end is the termination point, but it could also mean the idea of goal or consummation. Okay. Which I think that's probably what Paul's focus is, is not just some sort of terminating point, but rather the goal, the consummation. And so, again, just notice, I want you to see, I'm not putting anything into the text, and I'm not leaving anything out of the text. Notice the telos occurs at Christ's second coming. Now, an interim period, such as the millennium, literal thousand years, is possible, but not necessary. Why do I say it's possible? Well, because there is, in fact, an interim between Christ's resurrection and ours. Okay. So is it possible that Paul says those who are Christ at his coming and then the end, and actually he sees an interim between that period, and the answer is possible, but it is not necessary. So Tom Schreiner says, says about this, he says, certainty here is impossible. In other words, there's no way to know for sure, whether Paul sees an interim period or not. But then he goes on and says this. But since Paul nowhere else refers to a millennium or an interval between Christ's coming and the end, the end here should be understood as occurring when Christ comes. I think that's the, actually the most simple, straightforward way to read the text. Paul's not concerned with the fate of unbelievers here. Thus, it does not enter into his discussion. So Christ comes, um, his, his people are raised, and then the telos, then the end comes, and then notice what happens. This is what happens at the end. When he hands over the kingdom to our God and Father. It's quite a picture, right? It's quite a picture. So, what do we make of this, this phrase, he, he hands over the kingdom to our God and Father? So, Christ returns, parousia, his people are raised with him, 
then the end, the consummation, the telos, and then he delivers the kingdom to his father. I want you to I want you to think about this. So Christ, Christ fulfills this mediatorial role of the last Adam and the son of David. Was Jesus eternally the last Adam? No. When does he become the last Adam? At the incarnation. Is Jesus eternally the son of David? No. He becomes the son of David at the incarnation. In other words, the incarnation is the, Jesus is eternally the son. All right? Jesus is eternally the son of God, co-equal, co-existing with the father. But at the incarnation, he becomes the God-man. Was Jesus in eternity past the God-man? And the answer is no. He's the God-man at the incarnation, and upon his um, inauguration as the God-man, he becomes the last Adam, and he becomes the son of David, and he enters into his mediatorial roles as prophet, priest, and king. Was Jesus eternally the mediator between God and man? The answer is no. He becomes the mediator by virtue of his incarnation. And so the kingdom, all right, the kingdom that Paul has in view here, the kingdom is given to Christ by virtue of Christ's own death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. We'll continue the quiz. Is Christ eternally sovereign? Yes. Could you say, is Christ eternally Lord? Yes and no. He is declared both Lord and Christ, Acts 2.36, by virtue of his resurrection. So if you mean Lord in terms of the Almighty, yes, Christ has forever been Lord. If you mean Lord in the sense of the resurrected, ascended Christ, then the answer is no, it only happens See, one of the things that we do is is we 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 flatline our theology. Okay, right. So we 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 
and, and by, by flatlining our theology, what I mean by that is we, we allow systematic categories to define everything about our theology, and we fail to actually see the unfolding mystery of Christ in terms of redemptive history. Because there are these massive Christological moments in redemptive history that are unique to redemptive history. The incarnation, the virgin conception and birth, right? The hypostatic union of Jesus Christ being both God and man, 100% God, 100% man. The, um, the redemptive historical significance not only of the cross, but most importantly of the resurrection, because it's the resurrection that actually transforms redemptive history by inaugurating the age to come right now. Are, are, you, are, are you tracking with me? Okay. The resurrection changes history. And it inaugurates the age to come. doesn't consummate it. The consummation doesn't happen 524 until the end comes. Right? But it inaugurates it. That's why... You have been resurrected and you will be resurrected. And if you are resurrected, i.e. the new birth, then you are a new creation in Christ. And what that means is not just that you're a new transformed person, but what it means is that you are a person of the age to come, i.e. new creation right now. I mean, I'm totally excited about it. I just wish you guys were, you know. Um, and so, so, so here, let me just let me flesh this out a little bit more. So think about this. Jesus is raised from the dead. He meets his disciples in Galilee. We end up with the Great Commission. And he says, uh, Jesus says to his disciples, all authority has been given to me. In heaven and on earth. Didn't Jesus have all authority in eternity past? Yes, he did. Does he have... So, so was Jesus like... Was Jesus confused on the timing of his verbs? Not at all. When Jesus says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth, he means... By virtue of his resurrection, all authority has been given to him in a way that he did not previously possess. He previously possessed all power and authority as the eternal son who was equal with the father and has the attribute of sovereignty and omnipotence. But he is actually granted something by virtue of his resurrection. Now. Paul talks about this in Ephesians 1, 20 to 23, that Christ has been actually um, exalted and been given a name that's above every name. So in the age, to, in his present age, in the age to come, 
right? Everything's going to be subject to Christ. So Paul has this idea of the exaltation of Christ. And the exaltation of Christ is, is what? When Christ actually ascends into heaven. And what does the Father do when Christ ascends into heaven? I'm glad you asked. Because Daniel 7, 13 and 14 tells us exactly what happens to Jesus when he enters into heaven after his victorious death and resurrection and ascension. Daniel seven thirteen and 14. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming, and he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, that all the people's nations and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. So a lot of people look at Daniel seven thirteen and 14 as if it's the second coming. It's not the second coming. It's the ascension, and that the ascension, by virtue of Jesus in his mediatorial death, resurrection, and ascension into heaven, God honors him by giving him a kingdom. Now, what that means is that Jesus has been mediating that kingdom from the ascension and will until the second coming. And he mediates that kingdom not as the eternal son, but as the son of man, the last Adam, the son of David. In other words, he mediates that kingdom as one who has come into this fallen world to restore what Adam ruined. So, Here's how I would describe my millennial position. I believe in inaugurated millennialism. You like that? What's inauguration? In November... We're going to vote on a president, okay? And I'll tell you how I'm earnestly praying, especially after the VP pick. Somebody's going to win. Are they president the next day? They're not president the next day. They have to wait until what? What do we call it? Inauguration Day. That's the day in which the presidency officially commences. So when I say inaugurated millennialism, what I'm saying is that when Jesus ascended into heaven and was given a kingdom by virtue of his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, and exaltation, he inaugurated his millennial reign. And therefore, 
the millennium stretches from the ascension to the second advent. So I have a friend in Arkansas, Jeff Johnson, just um, did a blurb for a little book um, he just wrote called The Five Points of Amillennialism. Okay. It's actually wonderful, very simple, straightforward, gives you a very good understanding. But frankly, I don't like the term millennial because awe means what? What's that? Yeah, no millennium. So all millennialism, like no millennium. I don't believe that for a second. I believe in an inaugurated millennium that happens in Daniel 7, 13, and 14 when Jesus is given the kingdom by the Father. Right? But by the way, do you, do you know what that means? It means that Jesus reigns right now. Now, Notice, in our text, Paul's not saying when the kingdom was handed over to the Son, it's when the Son hands over the kingdom to the Father. So in other words, he hands it over to the Father. And by the way, when he does, history is done. When he hands the kingdom over to the Father, the very purpose of God in human history has been fulfilled and consummated. And then Paul says, when he has abolished all rule and authority and power. This is what is happening when the end comes and he hands over the, the, um, the kingdom. He's doing so because he has done what? He's abolished all rule, authority and power. What's rule, authority and power? Ooh, does Paul use these terms in other places? This triad of terms? Rule, authority, power? Please say yes. Yes. And he, <laughs> he uses rule, authority, and power in four other places. Twice in Ephesians 6 and twice in Colossians 2. And what Paul means by rule, authority, and power is the demonic realm of darkness. So what is Jesus doing right now? Well, look at what what Paul says. He's going to hand that kingdom over when he's done what? When he's abolished everything that is in opposition to God. Okay, verses 25 to 27, for he must reign. So verse 25, for he must reign until he's put all his enemies under his feet. By the way, all of his enemies under his feet is the same as when he's abolished all rule and all authority and power. And so, by the way, where does that that come from? Um, He must reign until he's put all enemies under his feet. Close. Psalm 110 and verse 1. By the way, what is the most frequently cited psalm in the New Testament? Psalm 110. Okay. And that psalm starts like this. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand 
until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So you you understand what's going on here when he says, for he must reign until, in a sense, this is the son's mandate. The son ascends into the presence of the father, seated at his right hand, and, and here is his mandate. You reign until the end. You reign until all enemies are subject unto your feet. You reign until you've abolished all rule and power and authority. And again, I can't say it enough. He's reigning now. You do understand, the, 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 I, I hope, that you see a profound difference between living the Christian life, waiting for Jesus to reign, and living the Christian life in the confidence that he reigns. Okay. Now, notice the last enemy to be destroyed is death. So all of these enemies lined up. He's going to reign until he conquers all of them. And the last enemy, the eschaton enemy, is death. By the way, let me just say clearly, death is an enemy. Don't buy into this pagan nonsense that Death is my sweet friend. Death is an intruder in God's good creation, and it's an enemy. I don't have time to do this, but I'm going to do it anyway. One of my favorite quotes on death is from Herman Bovink. You ever wonder about those passages in the Psalms, for instance, where David basically says, hey, you better do something because the dead don't praise you. You read those kinds of passages. Listen to Bob Inc. He actually gives an excellent explanation. He says, death breaks the varied and wonderful bonds of life relations in this world. Isn't that true? I mean, we've just experienced a number of deaths in our congregation. And I can't walk up the cul-de-sac anymore and visit with Betty. I can't call my mom anymore. What's death done? Death has actually broken the wonderful bonds of life relations in this world. He goes on, he says, and this is important, in comparison with Life on this side of the grave, all right? So me looking at, at the grave. Death results in non-being. That's what it looks like from this vantage point. The disturbing negation of the rich and joyful experience of life on earth. Death is the fruit of sin. Sin is death. Christ's death and resurrection is thus the restoration of life. And for those who are in Christ, death is no no longer the end, but a passage into eternal life. There's coming a day when death is going to be defeated once and for all. Death will finally die. 
and there will be no more death. Because the first things have passed away. Verse 27, notice he's put all things in subjection under his feet. Okay, so where does that come from? So I want to tell you that these, these wonderful little things, they're called cross-references. They're actually <laughs> right there in the margins or at the <laughs> bottom of your Bible. And actually, you can just look at the cross-reference. It comes from Psalm 8, all right, and uh, Psalm 8, 6. And so Paul actually not only applies Psalm 110:1 to Jesus, but also Psalm 27. He's put all things in subjection under his feet, all right? By the way, this is important. The writer to the Hebrews in Hebrews 2, 5 to 9 uses this passage and applies it. David's talking, as it were, about man in general. The writer to the Hebrews applies it to Jesus Christ, man as man ought to be. And so, here's Christ, and he fulfills humanity's purpose. This is, this, is the great, um, this is the great theme of all of redemptive history. So we just went through the judges. Right? I mean, with the exception of guys that they barely say anything about, who else is to be admired in the book of Judges? Right? There is this, there is this sense that, that even those who are called of God, even those who are raised up as deliverers, they are fundamentally flawed, and they're nothing of what they should be. Think about the kings of Israel and of Judah and, and even take the pristine king. Who's the pristine king in all of Israel's history? Jeroboam? David. David. David is the high water mark for the kings of Israel. And guess what? Here's the man who's designated as, as the man after God's own heart. And yet he is he is stained with sin of the deepest sort. And so not even David is man as man ought to be. They're all failures. And the whole, the whole uh, scope of redemptive history is just littered with failure after failure after failure. And man never lives up to his divine purpose or calling. In fact, he continually defies that divine purpose and calling. But in the fullness of time, God sends forth his son, born of a woman. That is fully human. Born under the law. To fulfill the righteous demands of the law. Finally. What's anticipated in Psalm 8 is fulfilled in Jesus Christ, man as man ought to be. And so here, all things are subject under his feet, all evil. Think about it. One of these days, you won't have to listen to heartbreaking stories about abused children. And political corruption and murder in the womb. One of these days, all evil, all enemies, all sin will be subject under Christ's feet and thus abolished for 
ever. Paul then throws in, it's almost like he doesn't want anybody to misunderstand, but when he says all things are put in subjection, it's evident that he is accepted, that is, God is the exception who put all things in subjection to him. In other words, the uncreated God is accepted of what is put under the feet of Jesus. All right. Verse 28. When all things are subjected to him, that's the father, then the son also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him so that God may be all in all. So Christ, the last Adam, the son of David, is in view here. So, so by the way, this is not about some eternal subordination of the Son to the Father. This is the subordination of the God-man in his messianic role to the Father. So all things are subjected to Christ. Christ himself is then subjected to the Father. Let me just reiterate, the Son is both equal to the Father and subject to the Father. He's equal to the Father as the eternal Son, the second person of the Godhead. He's functionally subject to the Father as Messiah and Mediator. And so once Jesus conquers all of his enemies and then raises his people from the dead, his mediatorial reign as Messiah will be complete and the purpose of God in history will be fulfilled and the triune God will be Glorified forever, all in all. You know what's happening here in verse 28 is that you finally get, in verse 28, you finally have a fully restored cosmos so that things are the way they ought to be. When God is all in all, things will be as they ought to be. And only until then. And so Jesus Christ, the God-man, actually will resume the glory with, with which he had with the Father before the world began. You remember that in the high priestly prayer, right? He talks about the glory which I had with you, 17.5, the glory I had with you before the world began. After he delivers everything to the Father and in his mediatorial role is subject to the Father, then, then he resumes that, that pre-creation glory that he had with the Father. So the mission of the Son is to put an end to sin and to consign Satan and all of his demons to the lake of fire and to destroy death and to give resurrection life to his people forever. That's what we're looking forward to. And the resurrection life of his people will be lived out in a renewed cosmos, a new heaven and a new earth where everything will be restored. It will be like Eden, just better. So this mission as Messiah and mediator actually comes to a glorious climax when everything is complete and death has died 
and the devil's been damned, and the resurrection life is accomplished. And then we shall be what we should be. We shall be where we should be. Right? And so you know what a passage like this does to my heart? It just makes me say, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this this marvelous text. Father, how much we have to look forward to as your people. Father, we pray that you would help us not to be so caught up in a world that's passing away that we forget he must reign until all enemies are subject to his feet. Father, we pray that you would remind us that sin and death and darkness and the devil one of these days will be completely abolished and that you will be all in all. Father, give us a sense of of eager anticipation for that day. And we ask this in the name that's above every name. The name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. We hope that you were edified by this message. For additional sermons as well as information on giving to the ministry of Grace Community Church, please visit us online at gracenevada.com. That's gracenevada.com.